0: Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: Telling a story is not something that you'd need research for. A story isn't sort of something that's academic necessarily, it's something that's instinctive.
0: How can a man live without his voice? That was the question that so often scampered around my brain like a dog with a taste for its own tail. A quote from a new novel, My Name is Yip. Yip Tolroy is a mute, and as he was born in 1815, this came with many challenges he might not have faced today. With no social support structure for someone like him, he's not even able to read or write during his early years, and as such, his life is rather uneventful to begin with. Not for long, though. Fast forward several years, and Yip gets caught up in a brawl during the Georgia gold rush, And while he's on the run, he meets an unlikely companion in Dud, Carter, with the pair then continuing their buddy trip of Jeopardy and Near Misses together, a journey that well and truly puts both of them through the ringer. The book's author, Paddy Crewe, is my guest today. Chapter 1. The Voice of Yip Paddy has created a protagonist unlike anything I've come across before, a four-foot nothing hairless mute who drives this epic story through a distinctly unique voice told as a reflection of his life the way it's written gives an incredible authenticity to that voice i found myself fascinated by the way he would use words with nobody correcting him upon the mistakes he's making we see that reflected in his misuse of tense punctuation capitalization and so on it is literary genius Yip eventually learns to read and write, empowered with the ability to communicate by a character named Shelby Stubbs. In fact, the way Yip describes Shelby is a great example of the slightly broken yet beautiful way he writes. A horseshoe of gunsmoke curls encircled his freckled pate, and he had took to supporting his anxious footing with an ivory-topped cane, the tip of which he did drive into the hard earth and use also to smite at the flies, what wind in a black halo about his head. Beautiful. But sadly, as you'll soon find out, Yip is destined for hardship, and this moment of empowerment is short-lived.
1: That sort of learning that he has with the retired doctor, Shelby Stubbs, is sort of abbreviated anyway, so I hope that sort of comes... There's only so much he's learnt in that period of time, and that sort of experience is curtailed, and the sort of tragedy of that is that this was a boy who was who wasn't afforded any any opportunity to learn and develop and suddenly this sort of he finds this person who's who's willing to sit with him and, and credit him you know with with the intelligence he has and he doesn't get to do that and that sort of unique the way he uses words that sort of rhythm once i sort of started you using that sort of rhythm it was sort of amazing how quickly it started to come together and basically the thrust of the story, as strange as it might sound, seemed to come from, you know, whatever energy you could create using language and you, and, and putting certain, you know, even, even you would have the strange or I'd have the strange sensation sometimes of putting one word next to another and it not quite, I, I use it, an example that I use from a sort of slightly different medium is when Tom Waits, who I'm a big fan of, he had a studio at one point in New York, which was sort of a log and row of, of a number of studios, and he would hear certain sounds coming through the wall that would obviously sound different to how the original sound was, but would somehow spark off another. So I, I sort of felt like that. Sometimes I would miswrite a word or, or misspell something, and that would then lead me on to something else.
0: The, the pairing of a of a misfit and a misfit in in any number of different capacities whether that's um he looks different or he sounds different or he just is different in some way the pairing of that character with a more conventional character is pretty well trodden ground we were swapping messages about this and i was referencing you know anything from rain man to of mice and men that's a familiar setup so to put him with with dud carter you know it it felt it felt familiar and then Again, he has this event and then he gets involved with another character, and you think, well, okay, he's going to be all right again. And then you realize that actually he's now in massive jeopardy because you, and this won't be a spoiler because we're not going to talk about it too much, but he literally ends up in a freak show, doesn't he?
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I think the reason why his relationship with Dud Carter works is basically they share this sense of being on the outside looking in, you know. Dud doesn't necessarily have the same physical vulnerabilities as Yip, but he is nonetheless an outsider anyway. They I, they both had, you know, Dud's mother dies very early on and his dad's sort of a bit of a no-do-well and is here, there and everywhere. So he's sort of left to his own devices. And there's mention of him, you know, who spe- he spends a lot of time with, with the sort of Cherokee community in the hills which is why he's got sort of he, he he sort of wears certain elements of their dress, and so when they come together i you know those were the parts that I think i I probably most enjoyed writing. I think you know that back and forth between them, yeah, I found very touching and I found very very sort of moving in in some way.
0: We talk about the backdrop to the whole thing, which, which, as I've said, is, is really the, the gold rush and, and Heron's Creek. And the gold itself, it hangs like a brooding presence over the entire story. I've not researched it that much, but I would imagine get such acute emotional responses to the presence of gold in a place like this. It will bring out the best and the very worst in pretty much everyone and it does doesn't it, it you know it sends it, it sends grown men absolutely crazed with desire to get their hands including yep, we should be fair to say mm. um, get their, their hands on on the gold how much did you know about the gold rush before you
1: started before you started writing this is one of those one of those questions which I'm almost sort of unable to answer I I don't know maybe you maybe you've had this before like I can sort of glimpse where I've looked at something about it but why I should have found myself looking at it I, is a complete mystery to me. But one I know that once I did, it was a sort of, you know, as much as you can have a sort of light bulb moment when it comes to, to ideas, it was, I, I thought, well, I've never heard of this before. And then I looked into it properly. And because there was so little done about it, you know, everybody everybody knows the sort of Californian gold rush, and, and that was a a far more significant sort of cultural event. But this was, you know, this was of consequence and and was significant. And to me, I was looking for something, and I'm sure this is very common with with a lot of 1st time writers, is that you're looking sort of for a framework that you can work within, that belongs to you. You know, when I've asked, been asked recently about, you know, people people often say, well, how would you know when what it is that you're going to write and, and what makes you sort of attached to a particular idea or a particular time? And I, I think to me, this book, when I was writing it, it felt like my turf, my territory. Only I am writing this about this particular character. And if you've got that, I think it gives I think it does give you an enormous sort of confidence boost, really, to, to persevere. Because if, you've, if you're constantly thinking, oh, I don't know, some, somebody else could be doing this and, you know, that dreaded notion that whatever it is you're writing, somebody else is doing the exact same thing and might possibly beat you to the punch, it doesn't get much worse than that. So I remember looking at it and thinking, this is somewhere where I, where I, I can make my story happen.
0: There are two questions I find very difficult to answer. One is a kind of a funny one. And that is, you know, when people find out that you're a writer or, or that you work in a particular medium, that they might say something like, oh, a- anything I might know. And I always think, well, I don't know what you know. So I'm yeah. certainly talking to that. But the other one is, and I, I've never known, and I'm pretty certain my face betrays me when I get asked this, but the question, where do you get your ideas from? I don't, I don't know how to answer that because... Is there an assumption that when you become a writer, you get given a big book of ideas that uh, you can just open? Because for me, it's a case of, well, I didn't know that this, whatever it is, was a thing, but that sounds interesting. Let's go and explore it. And the genesis of an idea comes from it. I don't have a special ideas book. I just try
1: yeah.
0: and observe. Yeah. That's what happened to you, wasn't it? You found something out and actually, yeah. it's a great vehicle for a story.
1: I think you've just used those two terms, you know, to try and observe. It is sort of learned behaviour. It's not something which I think that's what confuses a lot of people. And, you know, my ideas come to me in the same way that your ideas come to you. There's nothing, you know, if I were to try and get you to explain the genesis of one of your thoughts, you would probably be slightly perplexed. I think ideas, what people, when they're asking about them, it's something that you, to me, that that you learn to do. Um, it is a habit. It's, it's like anything else. Like with, the, you know, I wrote, uh, I came across that the Georgia Goldrush, and then, and then happened to be watching Wallace and Gromit one night, and then to, you know, that's the strange. All ideas are sort of abstractions of one kind or another until you start put until you start attaching them to other things, and that's when they become sort of when you can actually turn them into into a novel or a story.
0: Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now, for the second time, we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Our writing competition is back. In Series 3, we set you a writing challenge based on the lessons we've uncovered on this show. We broadcast the two winning entries at the midpoint of Series 4. This time, we're setting you a new challenge. Over Series 4 and Series 5, we followed the preparation of adventure athlete Kaz Lander, as she and her partner prepared to row unsupported around the coast of Great Britain. Remind yourself of what that challenge might feel like by listening to the two episodes in Series 4 and the bonus episode in Series 5. Then, in no more than a thousand words, try to bring that challenge to life. Two characters, one ocean rowing boat, and the vast coastline of Great Britain. With that backdrop, and your own imagination, feel free to go wild. At the end of the series, we'll pick a winner. We'll pay one writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of Series 6, and we'll also donate the same amount to Kaz's chosen cause – the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. But now, back to the show. Chapter 2, Wallace and Gromit. If you think about it, it's not that unusual to meet a character who can't talk. Take Gromit, for instance. He's a dog, so obviously he doesn't talk but that in no way makes him less important or less interesting. He's still an important part of that narrative and that duo. And if you look to cinema, many action sequences have lengthy segments that are completely silent. Heist films being a prominent example, and the 1955 French film Rafifi, perhaps one of the best. In this film, the heist sequence weighs in at just over 30 minutes, without a single word or bar of music being heard just raw, heart-pounding tension. Words are so very often only a part of the story. The difference here, though, is that silent characters are rarely the main protagonists, and these moments are often fleeting. So how do you go that several steps further and put that sidekick into the driving seat? And by the way, please understand, I'm not making up this reference to Wallace and Gromit. It really was an inspiration to Paddy.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean... Gromit is arguably carries the story more than anybody, and i had originally had I'd had a different narrator, and Yip was Yip was a sort of sidekick to somebody in the same way that that Gromit is with Wallace, and it was only sort of about I can't remember how much I'd gone through, but a reasonable amount before I then decided to go back and start again and, and have Yip be the narrator, just because I thought so, thought it was I, I felt sort of utterly compelled to see what could be going on in his head. But yeah, I'm, I'm deadly serious when I say that drama was watching watching that was a big inspiration for me.
0: We talk about the writing process here and, and the business of being a writer, um, Paddy. There are a couple of things that when I talk to writers or people that potentially come to me to ask for a, a, a bit of advice, there are certain things that it strikes me that people are told in their formative writing years about how you know, to be a writer. And one is to do with the research that goes into a story and the extent to which you absolutely have to be an expert in it, to the extent that you almost feel like you've become a professor in the period that you're writing about, rather than a writer trying to bring that period to life. And the other is that selling the book is absolutely, as an integral and important part of that. And, And in order to do that, you must be able to communicate with your readers via social media. You have a very deliberately different approach to that. We talk about the research, first of all. How much is enough? Do you, do you, because you don't follow the same pattern as, as, as the conventional narrative, you're not saying, actually, you need to understand everything about the Georgia Gold Rush before you can dare write about it. That's not the case, is it?
1: No. If I did know everything about the Georgia Gold Rush, then why on earth would I, I, I don't think I'd find myself writing a book about it, you know. Right. If there was ever a danger of, of, of sort of too much research for me is that it would be you would be entirely sort of sapped of your energy and curiosity to write, to create something from it. And that's not a position I want to be starting from, which means, you know, that research when people often, you know, they they think it must be done all before your writing. And this is something that you have an enormous stack of notes by your side, which you're constantly referring to. And if you didn't have them, then you'd simply have no idea what was going on, which, you know, is just fundamentally untrue. It goes back to wanting to write and wanting to be there every day and, and wanting to sort of surprise myself and keep myself interested. I think if I were a complete sort of expert on any topic, I think I would just find myself incredibly limited. I I think you just wouldn't feel the freedom, I don't think, that's that's necessary to to really sort of to to follow a story through. You know, telling a story is not something that you need research for. You need the research for certain details, certain, you know, without certain sort of the level of authenticity, then it's not going to work. But you know a story isn't sort of an, something that's academic necessarily. It's something that's instinctive, and you are using your intuition as you're going along. So yeah, I would I would say that's the that's the big pitfall about over researching. Yeah,
0: I once read and I forget where, but I've remembered what it said forever. And it it was talking about the fact that there are essentially two types of writers. And it was talking more specifically about screenplays rather than novels, but it, it does apply to novel writing. It says there are two types of writer: You're either an architect or you're a gardener. And if you're an architect, you need to absolutely lay out all of the foundations, all of the plans. You need to know exactly how this story is going to be constructed. If you're a gardener, you need to know what you can plant where and why, but you can effectively tinker and experiment and move things around. Now, I think if you have two architects and two gardeners paired together, you'll get nothing done. If you have one of each paired together, I think that that works really yeah. well. I loved dipping my toe into a period of history that I, I knew nothing about. I didn't feel that I wanted more architecture, if that makes sense. And the reason I say that, Paddy, is because to me, character trumps everything. You know, you could have put Yip into any period and I would have found him interesting. So if the most important thing in it is Heron's Creek or is the Gold Rush or is 1815 or the early part of the 19th century, I would have lost so much of Yip because I'm then reading about a particular period of history. You think, well, I could Google that. What I want to do is I want to spend time in the hands of a skilled writer following a character that I've never, ever seen before. So almost in a way, the research that you didn't do is probably a really good thing because that might have gotten in the way of me enjoying Yip.
1: Yeah, the classic, uh, it's Rose Tremaine, I think you said it, is that you do all the research and then you forget it. That makes much more sense to me. And plus, with Yip... You know, as um, is the case with any first-person narrative that's from a certain historical perspective, it would make zero sense for him. You know, there's there's plenty that I know about the Georgia Goldrush which isn't in the book because it would make absolutely no sense for it to be in the book. You know, yeah. that's that's Yip's world. It wouldn't make sense for him to be sort of going round and pointing certain things out and talking in great detail about because we don't go around doing that. We would look like lunatics if we were doing that in our world. So that's a, that is a key thing to remember when, you know, if you're writing anything that's set in the past, then, you know, this is, this is their world and it's not, it's not yours. And so remember that they are going about their business as you would go about yours in contemporary society, which is to say you wouldn't be oohing and ahhing at everything that you came across.
0: Chapter 3. Social Media Is social media the fundamental undertaking we're led to believe as writers? Or can it be optional? To some writers, this question is kind of like, is wine actually good for you? We all know what we want the answer to be. Well, for those who don't feel comfortable with crafting and cultivating an online persona on top of everything else and there are many reasons why you might not, then your prayers may be answered. If you head over to Twitter, you might notice that you can't find Paddy. And yet here he is, with a debut novel published by Doubleday, a Penguin imprint. When Paddy studied writing, he says he can't even remember the conversation of social media coming up.
1: I don't think the the lessons certainly weren't, or the seminars weren't necessarily sort of geared towards that side of things. I think you become a become aware of that if if you sort of gain representation and then the idea of it being published actually turns into something that might become a reality then you are asked you know your publishers begin to ask questions about it and would you be happy doing this and would you be happy doing that all of which I said no I wouldn't be happy doing any of it I don't know whether that would be different if you know if I was some kind of enormous success and I was dealing with I don't know whether the, the more pressure would be put on me. All I can say of my own experience is that my publishers were, were sort of incredibly accommodating about my feelings towards it. and I, I was eager to make it clear that it wasn't something I, was, I felt myself that I was prepared to do, you know, just for all what all seemed to me to be incredibly standard reasons, you know. I don't want to spend my time doing that. It's not something that's ever, ever interested me. Mm. Um,
0: it's fascinating because the majority of conversations I have with people about this topic now are about actually they're trying on an increasing basis to distance themselves from that platform because of any number of reasons. You know, take anything from I don't want my public life out there. Yeah. I have natural anxiety about this medium and this platform. I just I'm not that sort of person. You know, meeting <laughs> others fills me with dread and all, what you know whatever. Yeah. But I think it can be an incredibly powerful thing, but also an incredibly destructive thing as well. And I was just keen to understand how, you know, you dealt with that. And it's great to hear that the publishers were very, very supportive on it because it would have been in the, in the hands of another publisher, they may have put a lot of pressure on you.
1: Yeah, I I dare say that's true. I I don't think I could say I was necessarily forceful on it, but I just made it very, very clear that it, it, wasn't something that I would be doing because, you know, as you say, I'm sure there are so many sort of salutary things that, that by, my, you know, if I had a social media presence, maybe I'd be engaged in, you know, you know, I'd be meeting probably so many more people. I'd be, you know, creating opportunities for myself, I'm sure in some respects, but to me, none of that is worth sacrificing, you know, my privacy, And, you know, the nature of the of of the interactions on there is something that, as you say, have the potential, I think, to be so destructive that it just seems infinitely safer and more sensible to sort of keep keep away.
0: Best advice I was given on the date of first publication was about reviews and it was whatever the review says, think about it for 24 hours and then let it go because nothing good really comes either way, because either you're a slave to what people have said, or you get so anxious about it. I mean, I've had some lovely reviews. I've also had some just reviews that are full of hate for no apparent reason other than people feel that they are able to say things about the book. So on that, you lived with this book and this story for a long time on your own, working with your team, it's now out in the world. And one of the questions I always like to ask debutant writers is the luxury of being a debutante is that you get to experience this for the very first time. And in a way, you don't know what you don't know. Now that you do, now that it's out there, I assume you're working on other things. Have you been able to still be in love with the process of writing or have you now you know become <laughs> a little bit scarred by the whole process
1: no i i don't feel scarred by it i was worried that I, I that's what i i was worried that i would be in some way because you know as you as you're sort of suggesting it's quite a disconcerting experience to be to be writing something for three years to have it live in your head to be doing it you know as i was doing it in my in my my bedroom was too small to even have a desk in it, and I was working in a pub, so I would use my the bedroom next door when when my flatmate was out, and to go from that to then have it be you know to to have strangers picking it up and strangers reading it and and people asking you questions about it is quite an alarming thing to happen in on many levels, and I was I was very anxious that it would in some way have. A negative impact on, on um, what I would do next you know would I oh, you know you're mentioning the reviews would I read a bad review feel would this do something terrible to me would I would my confidence be shaken and I'd be I'd, I'd be on the scrap heap or you know conversely would I read something read a really nice review and would I then think I was king of the world and on that front I don't know whether this sounds odd but I it doesn't please me to see good ones, and it I haven't seen that many bad ones, but I've seen people say negative things about it, and that doesn't make any difference to me either. I don't know, which sounds incredibly, I've said this, it sounds incredibly ungrateful, and I was talking to another writer about this literally just two, two or three nights ago, and we were talking about how people, how sort of people in our publishing, respected publishing houses might see us as being real, you know. As if we're not sort of enjoying every moment of the ride and it, it makes you look a little bit of a bad egg. But so on that front, I've been writing away and nothing has changed, I'm pleased to report. No, nothing seems to have made made that much difference to me.
0: It's a classic case, isn't it, of, of the phrase compromise is where everybody gets what nobody wants. So at least yes. if you do it my way, I'll be happy. You know? Yeah. That's the only yeah. That's the only way you
1: can control this.
0: Um, yeah. My name is Yip is an astonishing debut. Paddy Crew, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Paddy Crew for today's episode and indeed for the character of Yip. And to recap, what have we learnt? We've said many times that you should become an expert in the subject you're writing about, But that level of expertise needn't mean getting into the weeds, becoming bogged down in detail. Become expert enough to catalyse your curiosity, but not kill it. And to give your story a level of authenticity and to ensure fair and honest representation. Otherwise, don't feel the need to get too far into the detail. Character always trumps everything. Just tell a great story and you'll be fine. Find your turf, find your territory. If you're just getting into the business of writing, searching for a story to tell, ask yourself, what story could only you tell? What character could be invented only by you? Then start there. Writers observe the world around them and use everything as inspiration. That's the whole premise of this podcast, in fact. But that doesn't always come naturally. That way of viewing the world is something that needs to be learnt in many cases. You need to try to observe things and get better at it over time. You'll soon see the stories emerge. And finally, we've spoken about the value of building a community around your writing in the past. But if you really dislike social media, or you simply can't stand the idea of sharing so much of yourself online, then here's the thing. Don't. Don't thanks for listening i'm mark haywood get in touch with me directly at info at we always love to hear from you we're also on twitter and facebook as at behind the spine and instagram as at behind the spine podcast check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode goodbye for now stay safe and keep writing
1: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.